This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, October 4th. On the pod today, after seven years of PC rule, the NDP takes the reins in Manitoba. Premier-designate Wab Canoe is promising change and is already calling his new job the toughest one he's ever had. So where will he start? I'll ask Wab Canoe just ahead. Plus, a crushing defeat for progressive conservatives and the provincial liberals virtually wiped out. Our Manitoba political panel breaks down last night's results and what's next for the province. Bob Canoe says the hard work now begins. His path to Premier wasn't an easy or a short one either. Manitoba Premier-designate Wob Canoe joins me now. Premier-designate Canoe, congratulations. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you so much and thanks for having me. Uh, I was in the room last night when you gave your speech and, and I was struck when you talked about the second chance that you got in life uh, to overcome the challenges that you face as a younger man. What, what does this victory say about the power of second chances? Well, I hope that it sends a message to young people that if you want to live a positive life, if you want to make good on your full potential, that you have the opportunity to do so, that in Manitoba and in Canada, uh, you can reach your full potential if you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to treat the people around you with respect. And certainly I feel that way. And so that's why I wanted to take some of the time that I had in speaking to our province and speaking to our country to send a message that I hope might help young people out there. You, you spoke directly to Nietzsche's. Am I, am I saying that word right, Nietzsche's? You're, you're speaking to indigenous youth in Manitoba. What message were you trying to convey to them? Well, I know that there are so many barriers that young people face, and, and really young people from all backgrounds I'm talking about here, and sometimes it can be discouraging. But I just wanted to take some time at a moment when I know that many people would be watching to just send a message of encouragement that, you know what, it's not going to be easy. Certainly it's difficult work to achieve the things that you want in life, but it is possible. You can do the things that you set out to do if you uh, treat the people around you well and you have the right uh, mentality and the right approach. And certainly somebody such as myself, we need a lot of help along the way too. And uh, I'm fully thankful, not just to our team, uh, the staff that we work with, but most of all to the people of Manitoba who have given us this opportunity to serve them on issues like healthcare and making life more affordable. You made history this win, with this win, and you said you want to be the best premier for all Manitobans, not just the first First Nations premier for Manitoba, but the win is historic. So, so what message do you hope it sends to, to First Nations people here in Manitoba and, and right across Canada? Well, one of the things that uh, I was very proud that we were able to address is, you know, over the years sometimes there's been this conversation about whether Indigenous people should participate in mainstream politics, but this time around I didn't hear any of that. This time I heard a lot of people buying in and saying, you know what, this is a system in which we can have a voice, this is an opportunity for us to make lives better, not just for ourselves, but from people from all walks of life in Manitoba. And so I would hope that one of the contributions that this campaign has made is to send a signal to people from all backgrounds, Indigenous people included, that it's so important to vote. It's so important to volunteer. It's so important to get involved in our democracy because you can uh, help move the needle. You can make a difference. 
You, you mentioned health care in one of your earlier answers. It was at the center of your campaign, and your wife is a doctor, so I'm sure there's no pressure at home on this. But you, you, know, you say you want to fix Manitoba health care. In your view, what does a fixed health care system for this province look like, and how long do you think that's going to take? Well, let's be clear. This is going to be a difficult task. Healthcare wasn't broken overnight, and so it will take years to fix. We've been dealing with years of cuts. We've been dealing with the uh, aftershocks of the pandemic. But what it looks like to me is the vision that we articulated in our campaign. Cancer care being the best quality service to help people in Manitoba dealing with that uh, terrible affliction, to have new emergency rooms, to have better primary care so people can see a family doctor or a member of a primary care team. But really, what unites all of these things is that it has to start with staffing. We have to increase the number of nurses and physicians and healthcare professionals that we have working at the bedside here in Manitoba. And so really, the start of our plan and what will continue to be the focus of our plan over this multi-year process that we're setting out on is to improve the working conditions and to improve the number of staff that we have working in our healthcare system to serve the people of Manitoba. So, so how do you do that, uh, Mr. Canoe? Because every province in Canada, every state in the United States of America needs nurses, needs doctors, needs health professionals. There's a global competition for the same people. So how does Manitoba have success when everyone else is also struggling? Well, uh, we've laid out three points to our approach. The first is we have to plug the hole in the bottom of the boat. That means let's stop losing the people from the bedside that we currently have. And here, I think one of the unique approaches that we've recommended that we didn't hear on offer from some of the uh, other parties is that we need to fix the culture of healthcare. There's been too much buildup in the bureaucracy of our healthcare system. It's time to simplify that and reinvest not only the resources, but also the decision-making power at the bedside. If we do that and we empower those working at the bedside, uh, I, I really believe that we can improve retention. Then, of course, we need to do the recruitment, the training uh, to develop that, uh, the reinforcements, so to speak, to, to bring them to the bedside. And then, of course, those things like world-class cancer care here in Manitoba, uh, new emergency departments, building the health care system of the future so that that young Manitoban out there who's thinking of studying nursing, thinking of studying medicine, decides, you know what, that's something I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a special thing that's happening in health care in Manitoba. The, the uh, health care was central to your campaign, but the controversy over whether to search the landfill outside of Winnipeg for the remains of Mercedes Myron and Morgan Harris and possibly the unidentified woman known as Buffalo Woman, it became a central issue in this campaign. So now that you've won, will this search go ahead? Yes, it will. We've committed to that, and we will show dignity for these families by delivering on it. You said it won't cost $184 million, which is at the high end of the feasibility study, but you haven't put a new price tag on it. Is there a price you anticipate for this, and is there a price where this, this might be too high? Well, I think that uh, what we need to do here is we need to find a, a second opinion, if you will. We've spoken to some experts already who've indicated that there's other search methods available. And so we want to get uh, that insight. The news today out of the federal government that they've commissioned an additional study, uh, hopefully that uh, might help in this effort. But the bottom line is we need to move ahead with this issue quickly to ensure that we're respecting the dignity of these grieving family members. 
Uh, on the federal role, Indigenous Crown Relations Minister Gary Nandasangari uh, says that he looks forward to working with you, presumably beyond the $740,000 they announced today for this study. What, what do you want to see from Ottawa on the larger search? Well, I would like to see uh, Ottawa be a strong partner in uh, ensuring that the uh, search happens. And of course, I think along the way, in addition to having a partnership with other levels of government, we have to remember that there's a role for the municipalities here as well, is we really need to work with the families. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be largely focused on a transition and moving towards that swearing-in date. Uh, but I do hope once we are in that uh, government chair, once we have assumed office, that we're able to sit down with the families and in a respectful way work with them to develop a consensus on a respectful path forward. I, I understand you spoke with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, earlier today. What can you tell us about the conversation with the Prime Minister and what your priorities are in that federal-provincial relationship? Well, it was a uh, cordial uh, conversation and uh, of course he called to uh, congratulate me and I jokingly also congratulated him because we actually haven't spoken since before he was elected as Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> but on a more substantive level, we talked about uh, our shared priorities and the values that we share for both Manitoba but also for Canada. And so of course, healthcare is always uh, one of the first terms out of my mouth in any conversation like this one and so I reiterated not only our desire to have a good partnership in terms of delivering health care and having resources for health care, but also in the Canada Health Act. The idea that you know, health care is a universal Canadian value that should be accessible to everyone in this country. And of course, the federal government, uh, they are the stewards of the Canada Health Act and the provinces have the role in terms of delivering health care to the people. And uh, the Prime Minister, of course, he talked about his priorities around housing and uh, the environment. And so I think we have a shared uh, goal to make life more affordable for Manitobans and for Canadians. Okay, so you've spoken to the Prime Minister about working with them. Uh, municipalities are going to have uh, priorities for you when you officially take the Premier's job. Winnipeg Mayor Scott Gillingham, he was on the show yesterday, and he says he needs your help to deal with homelessness and addictions here in the capital city of Winnipeg. Can he count on that help from you? Yes. Uh, one of our campaign commitments was a commitment to end chronic homelessness across Manitoba. And of course, Winnipeg, being our largest city, uh, sees its uh, share of this uh, unfortunate uh, situation, which one of our business leaders has termed a humanitarian crisis. So when you drive past a bus shelter, when you drive past a bridge and you see people living in a tent or sleeping on a mattress, I think we all know that we can do better. And so my commitment is to work with every uh, level of government necessary, including with the uh, municipal leadership of Mayor Gillingham, so that we can move the needle, so that we can get people into housing, but then also provide the wraparound services uh, to help people deal with addictions, to help people deal with mental health uh, crises that they may be confronted with. And at the end of the day, just deliver that one thing that every Canadian should have, which is dignity. The, the Prime Minister's office, in, in, in their readout, their statement about your conversation earlier today, said you discussed the revitalization of downtown Winnipeg. Is that fit into this plan with the homelessness and addictions issue that Mayor Gillingham is talking about? It absolutely does. The downtown of Winnipeg is Manitoba's downtown. 
of course, it's important to the, the, the Winnipeggers who live here, but people from northern Manitoba, from rural Manitoba, from other cities like Brandon and Dauphin, come here to watch hockey games. They come to downtown Winnipeg to see concerts, to have a night out. And so investing in our uh, downtown revitalization, which includes addressing the issue of homelessness, but it's also about economic reconciliation and some of the uh, investments to grow the economy in uh, the capital region are important steps towards helping our our provincial scene as a whole. But of course, we have a responsibility to address homelessness in Thompson, in Brandon, in some of the other communities across the province that are really seeing challenges here. So of course, we want to be strong on downtown revitalization for Winnipeg, but we want to be strong on community, community revitalization for everyone in Manitoba. Okay, just a final point before we let you go. Uh, you say you're focusing on transition. How quickly will you go from premier designate to premier, and when will we see uh, your first captain? Well, I, I don't have any uh, specifics to, to share with you right now. Unfortunately, I can't uh, help you make any news on that front. But I would say in uh, the coming <laughs> weeks, we will be making that move. Okay. Manitoba Premier-designate Wab Canoe, uh, congratulations again, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Manitoba did something more progressive than any of those big cities ever did. Wob, I hope that your win tonight inspires a future generation of Indigenous youth to get involved in our democratic process, not just here in Manitoba, but right across the country. I am truly sad today to be losing, but the people have spoken. A historic win for NDP leader Wab Canoe and two resignations for Manitoba PC leader Heather Stephenson and Liberal leader Dougal Lamont. We have our Manitoba election panel back for another night of insight and analysis. Kelly Saunders is an associate professor at Brandon University. Mary Agnes Welsh is a principal with Probe Research. Shari Gang, it's good to see you in person. Kelly, it's good to have you back for our final chat about this election. Uh, Mary Agnes, let's start with, with Wab Canoe and the interview we did there off the top of the show. What do you make of the messages he's delivering now that he's premier-designate as opposed to candidate? Yeah, one thing that really stood out is I think he was quite careful during the campaign to sort of shy away from this notion that he would be the province's and the, and the country's first First Nations premier. Uh, but now today, he, I think he's all in. This, this right. is the news of the day. This is what makes him special. This gives him some national profile um, and kind of embracing that. But I think the other thing that stood out is like the breadth of stuff he has to to deliver on now. He really ran on kind of a hopey changey campaign, very positive, unifying, big promises, and now sort of it's a little overwhelming, honestly, the, the things he has to get done in the next little bit. Yeah, Kelly, it's like being premier of a province is a hard job, you know, with a lot of big decisions and a lot of choice. What do you make of where he is now versus where he was uh, throughout the election? Yeah, I absolutely agree. During the election, he had to be, I think, quite guarded about uh, his indigeneity, which is unfortunate. Uh, but but I, we know that the opposition parties, particularly the PCs, well, namely the PCs, were really trying to weaponize that and use it against him as somehow to suggest that he's not qualified to be a premier because of his background and his, and his uh, race. So he had to be guarded about that, whereas now he can say, absolutely, I am a First Nations person, but again, I'm still going to be the premier for all Manitoba. And so coming back to that message that I am more than just my identity, it's an important part of who I am, but let's face it, there are big issues such as health 
healthcare that I need to fix. And and so so embracing it, but at the same time getting back on message. Yeah, I, I, Mary Agnes, he doesn't want it to define him, right? Uh, but it is history making. There has been a First Nation premiers in the territories, Inuit leaders in the territories, a Métis premier in this province, but never a First Nations premier at a provincial level, Manitoba or any other province. The list of things he has to go through. Healthcare is at the core. Yep. Uh, Healthcare is always a tough one. Like Tim Houston made it the centerpiece of his campaign uh, in Nova Scotia, and fixing it is tough, and it can come with a cost if you don't deliver. Yeah, huge cost, huge expectations, uh, a feeling among Manitobans that like we just need somebody to go fix it now. Somebody just fix it. But also looming recession, a civil service that's had a few tough years. Um, there's a lot of stuff. Homelessness, a massive problem. Um, Winnipeg could be the leader on solving homelessness. The mayor has made it a priority and has not had a provincial partner um, on affordable housing, on childcare, on all those things that are part of that homelessness equation. So Kelly, how do you, how do you expect to see that to change? I, I know Scott Gillingham, he was, he was laying it out yesterday when he was here of the challenges they have and I've only been here for a couple of days, but you can see it. You can mm-hmm. feel it when, when you travel around uh, Winnipeg. Um, how does this relationship change now uh, potentially offer a path forward on that issue? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm sure the mayor was quite happy to have uh, a more willing partner to sit down at the table. Uh, we know that the previous Conservative government froze um, uh, funding to municipalities for a series of years that really tied their hands and their ability to move forward uh, on issues like homelessness. And so I'm sure the mayor is very grateful to now have someone that's willing to sit down and, and, uh, and identify this as a priority item. But that being said, you know, as we keep circling back to, this is an incredibly tough challenge. All these things, healthcare, homelessness, are incredibly difficult challenges. So what that looks like moving forward forward, who all the players need to be, and more importantly, where the resource is going to come from. I think those questions still need to be answered. Let's dig into the results, uh, Mary Agnes. It, it, we're still waiting for the final numbers on six or seven ridings. Like, who knows, it, they, they might be in in the time the show is on because of the count uh, is changing like that. But it looks like 34 NDP mm-hmm. seats in a legislature of 57. So well above the 29 needed for a majority. Any surprises in terms of where they won and how they won and, and what the number is at? Yeah, it's actually a little bit hard to figure out what the defining narrative of this election was. I think you heard James Bazan say that urban-rural split. Yep. We've always had that. We're back to it, I think. And that the NDP strength in Winnipeg and the Tory strength in in the you know in rural Manitoba. Last night we were like, geez, who's going to be ag minister? You know, the NDP doesn't really have you know a real rural. It's a couple, but not yep. nearly what they normally would have. But then there's the weird like we were. All watching, we've talked about this with southern suburbs. The NDP in a lot of those suburbs won handily. It was not as close as we thought it would be. Um, and so what is that? And then even Heather Stephenson's own riding was a little closer than you would Under expect. Under 300 votes with one poll left to report is what the last number I saw there. Yeah. That's not a big margin for a premium. Yes, with a with an NDP candidate that had like no, no, no I hadn't. That was a name I hadn't even looked at, you know. Right. I mean, there were just, there's some weird, there's some weird realignments happening in Manitoba. But, you know, weird realignments, Kelly, maybe for Manitoba, but it is cities and suburbs that determine the elections uh, mm-hmm. all across North America, really. And it certainly played out uh, in Manitoba last night. What's your sense of how the results landed? Yeah, I mean, I think that divide is really quite sharp. And, and, and that's a challenge for both both the, the, the government, the incoming government, as well as the official opposition, now the progressive conservatives. And let's start with the NDP. 
key. Uh, you know, their base of support clearly is Winnipeg as well as northern Manitoba. But I come from rural Manitoba, right? And so we need to make sure that we have a premier who knows us, who understands us, who's willing to prioritize our issues along with Winnipeg. And so Wabkanu has to reach out, and, and that's a child, that's a divide he has to cross. Well, you can, you can end up with blind spots if Absolutely. you don't have representation from areas, right. and it's just not being discussed at the caucus or the cabinet. That's table. right. And for the PCs as well, they need to reach out to Winnipeggers. You know, their base is, is the exact opposite in rural Manitoba. So they have to find a way to build those relationships in Winnipeg, understand, which clearly they didn't get in this election, get it correct. What are the concerns about Winnipeg? What are the, what are the issues there? How do they build those bridges? So I think for both parties, that geographic divide really comes into play, but in different ways. Okay, so Mary Agnes, I mean, Wab Canoe, obviously, he's got a transition, he's got to yep. become premier, he's got to swear in a cabinet and staff up. What do the progressive conservatives do now? Because Heather Stephenson won her seat by a narrow margin, but she said she was quitting as leader, and we don't yet know if she's going to stay on as a member of the legislature. Where did the Manitoba PCs go next? Oh, God. I think they're at this sort of tipping point between do they double down on that strategy that is, you know, a little bit more hard right, taking some of those, uh, you know, really elbows up tactics that we've talked about a few times here, mm-hmm. or do they do what some of those progressive red Tory cabinet ministers who lost last night might want them to do, which is moderate, moderate, be a little bit more middle of the road, uh, you know, a, a bit more compassionate, build some of those relationships. I, I, I for me, and I, it maybe too is too early to say this, but for me, one of the lessons is you cannot win in a moderate province, right. potentially a moderate country, if you are going to take some of those, those more uh, kind of radical, you know, right-leaning stances. Right, and, and so Kelly, you know, not, not, I'm not going to try to Manitoba explain to the Manitoba experts, but that was my impression of Heather Stephenson. It's kind of a moderate in the Tory tradition of the PCs when she first started. Yeah. By the end of the election and the way they ran the campaign, it was a very different, it wasn't the vibe I expected to see from Heather Stephenson. So what do you think the PCs? Yeah, and I don't think a lot of us expected yeah. that vibe, right? And in fact, right when she first became Premier, took over from Brian Pallister, she expressly said, I'm going to heal Manitoba. I'm going to bring people together. I'm going to, I'm going to be more conciliatory, more inclusive. And then that held for a short, tiny little window. And then it was sort of politics as usual on the, on the Tory side. So, you know, Mary Agnes Agnes is absolutely right. The Tories really have to dig deep and say, okay, who are we? Where do we go from here? What do we stand for? And obviously what we were doing during this campaign didn't work. So we need, we need a reboot. We need a reset. Now, whether or not they're prepared to do that, or they're just going to say, you know, Manitobans, they just don't get us, you know, and we're going to double down even more, and it's going to be business as usual for them. This is their this is their moment to decide which path they want to well, take. Well, I, I suspect the leadership race, whenever it happens, Mary Agnes, will give us a sense of, of where the party is going to go based on who runs and, and how yep. they run. But talking about the, you know, the, the point that you need to be able to talk to Winnipeggers, yeah. can you get votes where there's 32 ridings in this city out of the 57, yeah. can you be elbows up and win in Winnipeg? And then the, the flip side of that question is, can the Tories find it in their rural base to elect uh, an urban leader? You know, the names, right. there's a couple names right. being bandied about now, um, and one of them, Abi Khan, is a... A, a very modern face of a, of a progressive conservative party. Urban guy, uh, you know, Muslim leader, businessman, uh, he, you know, is it going to be him or is it going to be Candace Bergen? That's the other name you keep hearing right now. And that, like, that, that's the mm-hmm. choice right, right there, you know?
Yeah. Yes, and that's two very different paths. Very different. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Kelly, just as a final point, because we're, we're tight on time, and just the liberals. Mm-hmm. Dougal Lamont resigned. They're down to one seat. It, it's uh, Ms. Lamoureux uh, from mm-hmm. a political family mm-hmm. uh, here in Winnipeg. What do they do now? Are they just done, do you think, as a credible force? or Million dollar question, yeah. right? There's no space. There's nowhere for them to go. Right. So it's, uh, talk about a challenge. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think there is much of a future for the Liberal Party, at least in this current political dynamic. Uh, they have no money. They have no, no staff. They have no resources. They have no members. Pretty tough for them to be able to find a, a path forward from here. Yeah. Other than that, it's going great. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kelly Saunders, Associate Professor at Brandon University, Mary Agnes Wells, Principal with Probe Research. Uh, it's been my pleasure to have you on the show throughout this campaign and thanks so much for joining us on the day after thank you it's been great thank you all right thanks gang all right well the ndp's win in manitoba ushers in a new political era in the province and here to discuss the significance of that victory is nigan sinclair a columnist for the winnipeg free press and a professor of indigenous studies at the university of manitoba he's in ottawa tonight because i'm in winnipeg and that's just how me and nigan roll apparently nigan so uh let, let's start with your your assessment of what we heard from wab canoe uh, uh earlier in the show well what was your takeaway um from the interview you did and what he said about the direction and the priorities he has for this province. Uh, one thing I really noticed with Wob's answers uh, in your interview was uh, his emphaticness. And I think that uh, what's he's very direct on saying, these are the priority issues, uh, these are what's going to happen. And uh, while he doesn't have a timeline, I think that uh, the fact is he woke up this morning and said, holy, 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 that what am I, uh, this, I've won and I think that many people had projected for years that he wasn't going to win, and for many reasons, uh, namely the uh, rancor of the campaign, that perhaps uh, maybe there was some belief within the NDP that maybe they couldn't get over the hump with uh, Wab Canoe, and the fact is that he woke up this morning and realized that this is going to be a very hard job, and he even said so in the interview. It's going to be the hardest job I ever faced, he says. You, you, you made the point last night on the power panel, Nigan, about uh, Wab Canoe and his life story and, and getting a second chance. And he talked about uh, the second chance that he was given in his speech last night when, when he was celebrating the victory. Uh, what do you think that second chance and this win signifies? Uh, there's something really significant happening in Manitoba. Uh, if you think about it in the wave of sort of blue premiers that go from the Maritimes all the way to the Rocky Mountains, uh, we've got... Uh, this now island of uh, not just uh, a First Nations leader leading a province, I mean, that's remarkable unto itself, but that Manitobans came out to reject what are some really key issues for the federal Conservatives, and right next door in Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, rejecting outright things like parental rights, uh, rejecting outright the kind of rancor and divisiveness of saying uh, we don't want to deal with Ottawa. I mean, what's the number one thing that happened this morning? The very first thing that happened is, is when we talk about the uh, search of the landfill, suddenly now Ottawa is coming to the table with money uh, to offer to begin that search or to further to uh, investigate that search. So there's money on the table, and even Justin Trudeau said that it's going to it's a bit of a relief to him to have a progressive yeah. premier. Yeah, and I, and I think they Ottawa wanted to wait until this election was over before they came with anything because they didn't want to be seen as like weighing in and putting their thumb on the scale. But you make a good point in that now there's a relationship and some movement and maybe resolution to this issue. And and you know on the point about the history of this election, you know Wab Canoe being the first First Nations premier, he says he didn't win to be that to be the first First Nations premier, but to be the best premier for all of Manitoba. What do you make of the way he's framing that? Um, in his in, in the wake of his win, well, I think 
I think that he said that during the campaign because uh, what Kelly had pointed out in the panel just before me uh, is that you you didn't if you wanted to win votes in that sort of thirty percent block of the that was the bedrock of the conservatives who were appealing to some of the more um, uh, divisive and racially driven comments. You didn't want to remind them that you're indigenous. You didn't want to remind them that you're First Nations. And uh, but I just want us to just think back for just a minute. I mean, why did Brian Pallister get removed? I mean, he got removed from office not because of failing health care. He got removed because of his divisive and incorrect, you know, offensive comments involving Indigenous peoples. His own party kicked him out. And then what happened with Heather Stephenson? It's almost as if she forgot that. And, you know, there she was uh, doing a fairly conciliatory run as a premier. And then, boom, the election happens. And what's the the last days of the campaign are full of the same exact rancorous division, inaccurate, stereotypical statements about Indigenous peoples. Uh, And so that says a lot about Manitoba. Manitoba was interested in wanting to move in a direction to support and engage reconciliation. Uh, you only have to be on Orange Shirt Day in Manitoba to see that the biggest crowds are in Manitoba. And uh, and I think that it's no coincidence that the first place after Confederation is Manitoba, the, the place of Treaty 1, and that what you've got is you've got this moment of Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples coming together to begin the first steps of a country. And it's no coincidence that the very first First Nations Premier uh, happens right there in Manitoba. All right, Nigan, always appreciate the time. That's Nigan Sinclair, columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. Thanks, man. Yeah, miigwech. It's the first full day for new House Speaker Greg Fergus overseeing the Commons. He promised a month ago that we'd have an affordable Thanksgiving. I'm just, I know it was a ridiculous promise. Colleagues, order. Today is a bad day for Conservatives, but a great day for the people of Manitoba. Colleagues, colleagues, I could not hear the question. We won't be taking any economics lessons from that guy. I know that we are caught up with the passion of the debate. I ask you to always direct your comments through the chair and to also make comments which are not disruptive to the House. Okay, so will Greg Fergus be able to better manage an increasingly partisan debate in the House of Commons? The Power Panel is back on that one. Sherelle Evelyn, Jordan Likeness, Tim Powers, and Amanda Alvaro. All right, Sherelle, I will confess, because I'm here in Winnipeg focusing on Manitoba, I have not really paid close attention uh, to the proceedings in the House of Commons today. Is it an idyllic utopia of legislative cooperation, (laughs) or is it the same as when I left? Well, we were just waiting for you to leave, David. Everything is fine now. All the problems are exactly. I mean... I was the problem all along. All I knew along, it. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously things aren't going to change overnight and I don't really expect them to change that much. It was a little bit quieter. It was a little more decorous. I think people are kind of uh, heeding Greg Ferguson's call right now, for now. Um, it is still very early days. Um, what was really interesting listening to uh, Greg Ferguson at QP today was he kind of t- sprinkled in there that there were going to be these new guidelines coming from uh, the other speakers, from him and the, and the other uh, team of speakers, saying uh, as to what people in could could and could not say in the house. So, uh, so he's already trying to you know put his stamp on things, and I think uh, having mm. that come through will be really interesting to see what those guidelines look like. But you know, I'm not you know expecting the moon here. This is as much as many perks as there are for the job of being a uh, speaker of the house. It is absurd 
log. You, like you're trying to keep uh, <laughs> those room from being you know, a kindergarten class yeah. on speed. And so what I'll be looking for is to see whether or not he's going to be you know thrown off this glass cliff. You have a uh, the first black speaker uh, after he came in after a really really bad situation. And if things don't mm-hmm. get fixed magically, um, as it, because they've been broken for a very very long time, they're going to look at him and say, "Yeah, you had your shot. We'll go back to the status quo." Um, because you know, as we all know, for us, you know, racialized black people, especially, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. So I don't expect him to fix everything, but it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to watch how he moves forward. Yeah, Tim, the upside for Greg Fergus is he gets to be Speaker of the House, and the downside for Greg Fergus is he gets to be Speaker <laughs> of the House. Uh, because if, if you've watched it, it it's, it's not a pleasant place right now. And in, even in, in sort of the speech yesterday that the opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, gave, he kind of went into a stump language and like a nonpartisan congratulatory speech uh, for Fergus. So, you know, when traditions are kind of up for grabs, uh, what will new guidelines do in terms of getting MPs uh, more, more in line? Probably nothing. I mean, Greg, uh, Greg might want to invoke the headlock uh, as a technique uh, to deal with some of the people there who will put him offside, and he's a physically imposing fellow. Um, not that I'm encouraging violence, but I mean, you, w- what's happening in the House now, too, David, it's been happening for a little while. They're all trying for the social media clip. For years, it used to be the television clip, which yeah. did require yeah. a little bit more cleverness and thoughtfulness. Uh, so you, you want the rock'em, sock'em nonsense, or that's what the politicians want. But uh, when I was watching Greg there and and listening to him a little bit, he seems like he's trying to channel uh, Peter Milliken, uh, who was a pretty good speaker, Mm -hmm. as you recall. Milliken would use wisdom. He would use wit. He would use wise counsel to MPs. Uh, And I think Greg has that demeanor about him where he can start that way. I think um, there will also be, at least in the early days, a desire to behave somewhat better by the MPs because of the history there. Um, I, I agree with Sherelle, and Sherelle would know it better than I. Greg probably knows better than anybody. He has to work twice as hard. But equally, it's incumbent upon the parliamentarians to recognize this hugely important moment in history and and, and try to help enhance it, not diminish it. And that means listening to Greg where they can because they don't want to get themselves in a place where not respect the speaker is uh, is turned into a much bigger political story. Well, Amanda, Tim touches on something really important for people to understand about All right, the way the house screen, functions. David, that, that rarely happens. <laughs> I, I know, but it, it's essentially become a, a content factory for the social media feeds of, of politicians. Totally. And, and so things are said in an outrageous way, often in yeah. clear violation of what the rules of parliament are. And it's like seized to serve that the, the, the original function of it, and it's become a, a content firm for people. So unless there's a crackdown on that, what is the path forward on, on improving things in the House? Yeah, I mean, it's attack dog politics and and Pierre Polyev is the pit bull, right? And has been for a long time. And I think that despite the rehabilitation effort all summer, I think it's going to be very challenging for him to change his style. And that style has worked for him because what it generates is not just the headlines, but the social media clips. And it's 
You know, it's that kind of like rage inducing rhetoric that gets people really riled up and excited on social media. So I don't know that the party suddenly, that party in particular, is suddenly going to, you know, ring all the decorum bells and fall in line. I think that we're going to have a honeymoon period. Um, I think that the expectations are pretty low that you can muzzle any attack dog for a long period of time. And I think that keeping the decorum in the house uh, to a level that would be satisfactory to most Canadians where people might actually tune in is a like, I'll, I'll give that some very long odds, <laughs> despite the affection that I Jordan, have for Greg Fergus, who I think is excellent. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, do Canadians care about this? Uh, are they just content to see the entertaining clips on social media that sort of confirm their biases and they're not that worried about how the actual behavior is inside the House of Commons? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think most Canadians care about this, which is which is too bad because, of course, the House is their house, ultimately, and uh, and a lot of important debate and discussion does happen there. But look, I think I think there's a couple things. It's important, I think, to acknowledge that in our parliamentary system, conflict is is part of the system. That's really that that yeah. level of intense debate is baked in. So I, I think there's limits to what can be done to curtail that. But the other thing is that it's also a workplace. So it you know, there's things that are not acceptable in regular workplaces that happen regularly in the house in terms of comments and and certainly the the type of sometimes things that border almost into harassment that particularly women politicians can face in the house so there are issues there where i think greg uh is going to need to choose his path and to focus on what he can improve and to do that he's going to need to have credibility with all parties and i think that certainly his election is obviously a good testament to to how people feel about him within the House of Commons, but then, you know, folks will also be watching his rulings and they're going to want to see that he's even-handed and fair, which I think he is. I got a great deal of respect for Greg personally, so I'm sure he'll rise to the occasion. But that will also play into how much people really listen to and respect the new tone that he's looking to set. Cheryl, it sounds to me with Jordan talking about it being a workplace, he thinks MP should unionize. I, I think that could be an interesting <laughs> idea, Unifor local. <laughs> so, but Cheryl, uh, I, I, right. I, I wanted to pick up on, on a point you made. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I want to pick up on a point you made in the beginning. You know, um, the, 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 Greg Fergus as the first black person to hold this job. And you're saying having to work twice as hard, you know, to get ahead. It's, it's hard to ignore that on the two big choices made in this country yesterday, a first First Nations premier in Manitoba, the first black speaker of the House of Commons, and the importance of representation. What are your thoughts on that? You know, we're, we're, you raise it. I'm just curious, what, what does this mean in, in, in the bigger societal context that someone like Fergus is in this chair? Well, I mean, it could mean a great deal to somebody who's who's looking at, you know, our institutions and saying and trying to figure out if they have a place for them, if they can find a place for themselves within them. I mean, I feel like a lot of the yeah. time we don't, we don't, you can't do what you can't see, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that you have, you know, this first First Nations uh, premier of a province, you have the first black speaker, those are, those are milestones. Those are important milestones, regardless of how long uh, they're in these positions. Um, they were in those positions. Um, and that can never be taken away from them. And and I believe it was um, Jagmeet Singh who, you know, as he would, you know, highlighted that in his congratulatory remarks after uh, mm -hmm. Greg Fergus was elected, saying, you know what, people are going to come into this into this uh, building, um, whether it's you know West Block or Center Block million years down the road and they will see uh, a portrait of a black man hanging on the wall whereas yeah. They, yeah. 
there hadn't been one before. So that's you can't uh, you can't cut down on how much it, representation does matter. It isn't everything, but it matters a great deal. And I know when you know his name was read out um, on on Tuesday, I said to myself, I said like, holy, oh, that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a thing. That's a moment that just happened, and you could see it yeah. in the house. You know, with the hugs he was getting from all the other, especially the other black MPs. Like this is a, something that has happened, and it's something significant. All right. No, and, and that's uh, it, it. Certainly is significant, and, and obviously, and, and good luck to Greg Ferguson because <laughs> it's going to be tough. All right, we're going to end it on that point, uh, folks. Uh, thanks so much, Sherelle Evelyn, Jordan Likeness, Tim Powers, and Amanda Alvaro. Thanks, gang. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't regret standing up for choosing governance over grievance. It is my responsibility. It is my job. I do not regret negotiating. Our government is designed to find compromise. I don't regret my efforts to build coalitions and find solutions. The chaotic fight to become the next U.S. House Speaker is already shaping up to be a bitter battle. Less than 24 hours after Kevin McCarthy was ousted, his colleagues started vying for the job. But how will anyone win a majority of votes in this divided House after far-right Republicans turned on one of their own? The CBC's Katie Simpson joins us now from Washington. So, Katie, uh, fun times in Washington. Bring us up to speed on another chaotic day. You know what? You play that clip. The one thing that Kevin McCarthy said he regretted and it really stood out from his news conferences, a lot of the eight Republicans that voted to kick him out of the speaker's chair, he actually helped get them elected. And he said he regretted that. But that is... He can reflect upon that at a later date. But right now, uh, less than 24 hours after he was booted in this historic vote, never happened in the United States before, um, we've seen some of Kevin McCarthy's allies uh, put their name in to say, hey, I want to be the next speaker. Uh, the fr- front runners so far are Jim Jordan, who is a Republican from Ohio. Canadians might know him. He is a very staunch Donald Trump ally. Um, he also is overseeing the impeachment proceedings against President Joe Biden. Um, He is an attack dog, very hard right conservative. And so he's very popular with some of those uh, Republicans who went after McCarthy. Uh, The other is Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise is the the Republican House leader. Um, He right now is recovering from blood cancer and has said he is feeling well enough to to run to be the speaker. Um, He is also a Donald Trump ally and Canadians may know him. Uh, Back, I believe it was in 2017, he was playing in a congressional baseball game when a gunman showed up and opened fire he was shot, he was injured, but he has recovered. Those are two front runners that are, are jumping into this race right now. And one other thing I want to mention, while they are both very similar when it comes to conservative issues, they differ on one key foreign policy issue, and that is Ukraine. Jim Jordan wants to stop sending American dollars, American aid to Ukraine. Scalise has been one of more, the more supportive Republicans uh, backing U.S. aid in that cause. Okay, because, Katie, that's an important point, because there is the drama and the politics of who's going to run and who's going to support them and what's Matt Gates going to do. But there's real-world consequences of this on things like additional aid for Ukraine. So, so what concerns are we hearing from the White House? Because I would suspect Joe Biden is pretty anxious about this. 
Yeah, he admitted today that he's worried that all of this political instability could get in the way of um, hampering aid to Ukraine. Um, he didn't reveal any details, but um, he said that there were some other methods that the White House might be looking at in order to deliver aid to Ukraine. Uh, he said he'll get into that later, but he did also confirm that he'll be holding a major policy speech in the days ahead. He didn't give a date just yet uh, to try to make the case to the American people as well as lawmakers uh, that what's in Ukraine's best interest is in the United state's best interest. Uh, that is a point he is going to try to really stress with some of those Americans who question why billions and billions of dollars in U.S. aid are going to Ukraine. Um, it, it's, it is something that is becoming a growing divisive issue in the United States. It's very different. The conversation in the United States is different than when the conversation is in Canada. And there are a lot of Republican ma lawmakers, not, not the majority, but there are some very loud Republican lawmakers who are trying to say, hey, where is all this money going? going. Uh, why aren't we doing a better job at tracking where this money is going? Uh, and they want right. to, some of them want to outright put a stop to it. Okay, so the chess pieces are moving around the board on, on all of this. Where do things go from here in Washington? So next week is going to be a bit of a gong show. So get your popcorn, settle in, and get ready to watch a lot of CBC News Network. We are going to see probably multiple rounds of a speaker's vote unless somehow uh, one of these front runners can get all the votes together. Remember, you need a majority in the House to be able to take on this uh, role. And so uh, Kevin McCarthy took him 15 rounds a couple of days to sort of hammer that out and get enough votes. Of course, we saw him cut that deal with those far-right Republicans in order to get the speakership. That deal ultimately leads leading to his demise. Um, how, what's going to happen next? How anyone's going to get a majority? How anyone's going to have the confidence to govern, to, to be the speaker? You know, after what just happened, um, that's the big question in here. We keep asking analysts, like, how yeah. does anyone sit in that chair and do that job when, when there just isn't the unity? And so um, settle in, sit back. It's going to be wild. All right, a gong show, Katie. You can be our Chuck Barris next week. We'll have you on every day. This is CBC's Katie Simpson in Washington. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.